my goodness, where to start? This is, uh, this is a big one. This took me a bit to go through, and I'd spent some time doing research even before I got a hold of the game, and then after I got a hold of the game, and then while I was playing through the game. Let me go ahead and say a couple things before I really get started. First of all, I, know, I usually don't say this because, in my opinion, the mere fact that it says rumination analysis up there at the top means that it should be fairly obvious that this is going to contain spoilers. Duh, right? But just in case it's not super obvious, this is going to contain spoilers. This is one of those games that it's literally impossible for me to talk about without spoiling the crap out of it, similar to Undertale, for example. So, uh, you be warned. <clears throat> Something I want to talk about before I actually get into the game proper. This is a game that, in my opinion, better suits a lore run than a rumination. There's too many specific individual things and little polishing details and good voice acting and good voice direction and good visual presentation, which is stuff that just all, all I can do is mention in a rumination. Whereas in a lower one, I could actually show it. I had this feeling a lot while I was actually streaming this game, and there were several times where I was actually happy to be streaming this game and be like, look, look at that over there, or my god, look what they're doing with this, or gosh, can you believe this? It's one thing to tell you, you know, it was horrific. It's another thing to just sit here quietly and let you soak in the horror of it, that kind of a thing. No, I'm not planning a low run of this game before you ask. I just wanted to comment on that. So, another thing I wanted to comment is, as ever, a rumination is just me sitting down discussing what I feel is worthy of discussion. But in this case, I'm going to skip stuff, pretty much deliberately, because there's just too much. This is an enormous world, an enormous world that has been crafted by these people, and there's just too much to actually get into, especially since some of it would be just kind of mentioning it, you know? Like, there's not much to discuss about, I like how each of the tribes in each region were are, are designed differently based on whichever cradle, you know, Eleuthia cradle they came out of, you know, that kind of a thing. There's nothing to discuss there, it's just, that's cool, right? I, I, it doesn't really belong. So now that I've talked about the spoilers, let's talk about the gameplay a little bit. First thing I want to do is I want to talk about the negatives of the gameplay, because if the spoiler thing didn't warn you away, then the, me talking negatively about this game probably will. <sighs> Let me go ahead and say, and I, and I know this is going to sound horrible, but please hear me out. If this game was on the PC, my single biggest complaint about this game would go away. No, it's not the fact that it's PS4 exclusive. I have a PS4. It's right there. I played this game on the PS4. I streamed this game on the PS4. So I can prove this. At least, I could prove this back in the past. Obviously, by the time you've seen this, I can no longer prove this, because Twitch deletes those things. But you get the idea, right? <clears throat> no, that's not the issue. It's not about exclusivity. It's about the fact that <clears throat> the game is not very well balanced. See, this is several recurrent issues that all kind of coincide to make this very unenjoyable for me. See, I actually played this game for about 10 hours before I started streaming it. And during that time, what I mostly did was played around with the gameplay, running around the intro area, uh, trying out different things, seeing how different things worked. And I cranked the difficulty uh, one step from the top. I don't remember what it was called, but it was like a, there was the supremely extreme difficulty. I went one step below that. And I found myself getting creamed. Now... I know what you're thinking. Oh, well, get good at the game, right? That's usually the response. But the pr problem is the reason I was getting creamed is because at that level, the game expects you to treat just about every fight seriously. Not a huge issue, especially since you can avoid most fights. 
But the problem comes from the fact that you suddenly become very limited in what you can do to fight whatever you're fighting. You've got the tripcaster, okay, and you've got the bow, and that's basically it. See, here's the thing. I can't do analog aiming. I can't. I have never been able to aim properly with an analog, going all the way back to the N64 or the PlayStation 1 whichever one you want to start with. I've never been able to do that. I have never enjoyed doing that. And the game is designed such that you can't really do anything else. You have to use the bows to hit the weak spots at a certain level, and you can't get up close with the enemies, because if they hit you, they freaking kill you. Even the basic watchers on hard difficulty hit like a truck if they actually connect with you. So you need to keep your distance, and you need to hit them where they're weak, you need to lure them into traps, you know. And none of that would be a problem for me if I could use my mouse. If I could aim properly. But the fact that I have to do this analog thing, it just became frustrating. It went from being, oh, this is an engaging and intense fight where I have to be very careful to, oh, i got to do this again. It got to the point where even after I cranked the difficulty down for the sake of pushing through the game in the three days I had to play this game, uh, or four days, excuse me, that I, I, I would get to the point where I have to fight some of the aerial creatures, and my first reaction is, I have to use the bow again. Hang on. Ugh, miss, miss, miss. Oh, I hit one for 60, because I missed its weak point. I know where the weak points are. I know where to hit them. I know what I'm trying to do. I ended up getting to the point where I had to do the strafe aiming. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't. Um, so you, 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 know, you get one axis aimed right, and then you just move, physically move the character strafing to try and push the reticule where it actually needs to aim. So the fact that it's basically required to use the bow, and I couldn't aim with the mouse, really lowered my enjoyment of this game, to the point where I'm honestly not sure I'll ever play it on a proper difficulty, even though I want to because I would have to use the bow. Now, on easier difficulties, the enemies don't hit like trucks, so you can melee. That's the other thing. This is one of the other recurrent issues there. The trees and the abilities you have aren't really that balanced. I did a little digging into the uh, behind-the-scenes of this, and it actually makes sense why, uh, given the way this game kind of came from multiple ideas that were just sort of grafted onto each other when they were trying to make this new IP and trying to go in a different direction, and a lot of this was based off of the kill zone engine and the kill zone mechanics. So it makes sense that they would basically graft on a melee mechanic, which is only situationally useful. And you can't actually do a full-on melee build, even though there are melee-specific skills, and you have this freaking spear, which you can upgrade through the course of doing quests and whatnot. Now, I mention that because I think this is really important, because that was my impression for a good half of the game. And right up until I fought my first, or excuse me, my second Thunderjaw. My first Thunderjaw, I was just like, yeah, and it was just wrecking me. My second Thunderjaw, I noticed I was playing it differently. And I, it, it's one of those things where I just started doing it, and then I mentally processed, wait a minute, why am I doing it this way later? Because I was playing it like it was Dark Souls. Big ol' enemy, right? 
and you have to watch for his tells. He always has his specific tells that he's about to do a certain attack. Now the problem is, in this particular case, dodge rolling will not save you from AoE attacks, and if you hit someone mid-swing, you can't interrupt their swing, they will always interrupt yours. And that very much changes specific tactics, as anyone who's played a very difficult uh, Dark Souls-y kind of a game can attest to. This is actually true in The Witcher 3 as well. I've talked about this there. So... You have to know when they're going to attack and predict it and get the hell out of dodge because just dodge rolling away isn't going to save you. You have to be a far enough distance away, right? So, but by the time I was fighting my second Thunderjaw and especially my third, I started noticing, okay, so he's going to do this. So run away, dodge back. Okay, he's going to go in, get in, one quick stab, run back out, dodge back. And it got to the point where I started being able to fight a Thunderjaw without getting hit most of the time. And I have to add that most because I'm, I'm pretty damn sure that on a proper difficulty, any of his stomping attacks in melee would flat out kill me. But what's weird is I was having fun with that. And I really wish they would do more with the melee or make the melee more feasible. And what's funny is, we were talking about this during the stream, it wouldn't be that hard. For example, why not make it so that you can lock on to, uh, to weak points? Not with the bow. You know, still have to aim the bow, so you can still have your aiming thing, for those of you who's actually good at aiming with the, retic uh, with the analog. But with your spear... So as you're circling the enemy, you can come in and not just jab at whatever happens to be in front of you, but actually try and get a melee blow in at one of those weak points, prying off the armor or reaching for the underbelly or getting up on the back of it. You know, additional, just a few additional options or button controls or move sets being added to the melee, I think would, could actually make melee viable even on a proper difficulty level. It would require being able to control what you're doing a little bit better. I demonstrated this on stream as well. For example, you have a th thing where if you're targeting an enemy, there's a contextual thing where sometimes you'll lunge towards them and do a striking attack. But it only does that sometimes, and it's contextual-based. You have no real control over it properly. So sometimes you just start swinging at the air in front of you as the enemy's just staring at you, shooting you, right? So being able to be able to, for example, hit another button like a like a dump, jump dash kind of a thing, or you know, like Super Mario 64 or whatever, where you hold Z and jump, you know, some kind of con uh, button combination to let you have control of those kind of lunging stabs, or like some kind of like overarching thrust kind of a thing to get on the back of a machine. You know, I feel like just a little bit more polish in the melee would actually be feasible. But as is, it's really only functional if you're really really good at this game, which I am not or if you have the difficulty turned way down. My other complaint, now that I've gotten that out of the way, is running. Now hear me out. I'm not going to complain about the fact that it takes forever to properly unlock uh, you know, infinite fast travel. That's, that's an unrelated thing. I did finally get my fox hide. It took a long time and killing a lot of foxes to get there. But um, that's not what I'm complaining about. What I'm complaining about is that in order to run... So you have to push L3, the left analog push in, in other words, for those of you who don't know what that means. And the left analog is what you use to move, so you, while you're already pushing it forward, you have to then kind of depress it a little bit. And that's the exact same complaint I had about Breath of the Wild, actually, the, the usage of L3 and R3 is for something that's just going to get in the way, and I really didn't enjoy that, and it got to the point where I kind of just started, you know, like, I would literally reach over with my other hand and shakud down because I wasn't getting it with just my thumb. I don't know, it's just... Maybe I'm weird, but I've always felt that for L3 and R3, you shouldn't bind those two everyday functions, you know? Maybe something that you use only occasionally, or like pulling up a menu or something. I don't know. 
I get needing it. You know, I get it. You only have so many buttons on a controller. This isn't a keyboard, but still, really? Or at least let us remap it. There's actually a thing that says control settings, and I'm like, yes, I can remap it. Nope. <laughs> That's it. That's all my complaints. I mean, I could mention little nitpicks, like uh, the invisible walls problem, which got a little irritating in certain sections. Like, uh, when I was leaving the... Uh, Oh, what's the name of there? The Devil's Pit or whatever. And there's like this little sloping thing, just like this, right here. And I'm like, okay, I'll just walk over this to leave the area. Plong! And there's just this invisible wall here. Like there's, there's absolutely no reason. The ground is like here, and there's this thing. But there's this invisible wall. I have to go out and go through the door to go through there. The game does that here and there, but it's not a big complaint. It's just really jarring every time I want into one. Or the fact that you can jump up to the point where literally your knees can reach a platform, but unless it has the specific you can grab onto this functionality, you're just going to be jumping at a cliffside, which kind of got irritating sometimes. Or maybe the fact that... Uh, I don't know. I, I can't even think of any other small complaints. They're all really small complaints, anything else I have. So if you've left watching me now, uh, I, I suppose I don't blame you, and you're also not listening to me, so I'm not addressing this to you. I'm addressing this to the people who are still here. Thank you for staying here. Because I really liked this game, if it's not obvious. I had a lot of fun playing this game, despite my major complaints. I, 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 I do regret the fact that I basically could only enjoy this game while cranking the difficulty down, but you know, what are you going to do, right? Also, this game apparently has a New Game Plus feature. Uh, I have to say, apparently, I didn't really get a chance to properly test that. Uh, so, I'm going off of what I've read there. The, you know, I don't even know what to say about the gameplay. It's one of the best Assassin's Creed games I've ever played. And I know that sounds like an insult, and I want to clarify that. I had to clarify this so many times on my stream. I don't mean that is a bad thing. I like the Assassin's Creed series. In fact, I'm one of the very few people I know who still enjoys the Assassin's Creed series. I'm really looking forward to Assassin's Creed Origins, which I think by the time this video goes live will actually already be out and I'll already be doing a premiere run of it. But, you know, as from my perspective, I'm looking forward to it. It's like, great, yes, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait to play another Assassin's Creed game because I like that style of gameplay. There's a sort of a rhythm to it, um, and that's something this game does very, very well. There's this flow of you know, a heavy combat section, or I shouldn't say combat, you know, heavy gameplay, lots of uh, puzzles or lots of running through a thing or fighting guys or sneaking through guys or trying to do the jumping, platforming things and fighting this big boss or whatever, you know, big old stretch of that and then a big old stretch of story, lots of cutscenes, lots of dialogue, pretty much universally voice acted. Very, 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 very little of the lore in this game is not voice acted. So you get into this wave pattern of gameplay, story, gameplay, story, and so forth and so on, that I think helps keep things going forward really well, because they're balanced between each other, ironically enough. Um, you get pretty much as much gameplay as you do story. And that's awesome. And I love the story. God, it kept me engaged from day one. Like, from minute one, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I just, I want to know more. And what's going on with this? And why is this there? You know, and, and the usage of the weak points on the enemies, which, which makes logical sense, because these are not machines of war, obviously. These are literally uh, construction, uh, testing, soil sampling, terraforming bots that have been repurposed to defend themselves, for God's sakes, and had weapons grafted onto them. Um, 
using the override to, to, to take control of things in combat or have a mount or laying out traps for things that are bigger and stronger than you. Or, uh, and, and the RPG elements I referenced earlier, where you actually level up and gain more health and the ability to, to specialize yourself more. And apparently, and I have to say this that way because I didn't hit level 50, but apparently by the time you hit level 50, you'll just have unlocked everything, so that's not a thing. Lots and lots and lots of really fun, interesting, engaging gameplay that I found myself enjoying the hell out of. Pardon me one moment. Forgive me, we have a bit of a storm rolling through and it's been affecting my sinuses. To continue, um, there's also one other thing I want to talk about gameplay-wise here. I know this is a kind of a brief section to talk about gameplay, and I f forgive me because I did, with, with the one big exception, very much enjoy the gameplay. But one thing they did that I at first I thought I was going to be upset about, and I turned out, oh, I actually really like this, is the dialogue wheel. If you remember, this is something I mentioned in Dragon Age 2, and frankly was kind of crap in Dragon Age 2. But the reason why is because Dragon Age 2 was an RPG. Let me explain what I mean by that. In Dragon Age Origins, when someone says something, you have like four or five dialogue options, and that allows you to determine the tone or style of, of how your character is. You know, to, to roleplay, to, to form formulate the personality of your character and choose the option that best fits you. I can't tell you how many people I've seen who play games like Divinity Original Sin 2 or Dragon Age Origins or the old Mass Effects or you know, Baldur's Gate. And they get to those dialogue options and they just sit there and think. I know I'm not the only one who does this because I've watched other people do it. And they just sit there and they think for a bit like, hmm, how do I want to answer this one? You know, really weighing their options. And that allows you to roleplay and decide in a character, right? And that's the kind of thing you expect and indeed want from an RPG. But we're not roleplaying a character, we're playing Aloy. All we can do is define the, f the flavor of what kind of a character she is. And thus this system works in that context. Because we can, and because uh, apparently, and I have to say it that way because I only did the one playthrough, but as you go through, depending on what you pick, changes your tone, and they literally play different voice clips, and you react differently and say different things to different people uh, along the three axes of thinker, aggressive, or sympathetic. And I like that. I, I like how we can kind of morph a, a, a sliver of how she presents herself and feel like we're still changing and having an effect on the story and the dialogue without actually going too far into literally having an effect on the story and the dialogue. It wouldn't fit in a proper RPG, is what I'm trying to say. And I don't think this is a proper RPG. I think this is a proper adventure game, which is awesome, that has RPG elements. And I like that thing. It's, it's actually kind of the same reason I like that same type of thing over in The Witcher 3. Because we're always playing Geralt, but we can kind of change the flavor of Geralt we're playing. You know, if we're super nice and, and helpful, which is how I played him, or if we're pragmatic but ultimately very cynical, or if we're just of it for ourselves, you know, we can decide what flavor of character we're playing. Now, uh, gosh, do I have anything else to say about the gameplay? Um... I don't think I really do. I mean, I, I could talk about specific individual things, but I guess that's really all I got. So now I'm going to go ahead and talk about the setting. 
as I mentioned before, as I've said many times before, I'm a bit of a world builder myself. It's the one type of writing I feel I have some actual uh, confidence in writing. And I love the world building of this game. It is phenomenal. It's one, it, I've said this before, it's one of the most interesting and engaging settings I've seen in a long time. It caught my attention instantly, and it, it kept me hooked, and I am still hooked. As of this moment, I want to know more. And it's interesting that this game has, I think we, we were counting as we went through the stream, I think there was like four potential sequel hooks. You know, we've got the obvious one during the ending. Uh, we've got Elysium, uh, we've got Thebes, which may or may not be related to the, to the hook at the end. Uh, whoever sent the mystery signal, you know, the masters that was referenced. Excuse me, we've got the Forbidden West, which is teased several times. They mentioned the Odyssey several times. Yes, I know they say the Odyssey was destroyed, but they could still do something with that. I'm already up to six. I'm just counting off the top of my head. There's a lot of dangling threads that they have deliberately left, and you could tell this is something they want to franchise. And I say that because I came to that conclusion before I did a little behind-the-scenes research. Turns out they were deliberately trying to make a franchise, so credit done, I suppose. I believe by the time this video goes live, the DLC will be out. Obviously, as of now, it is not. But I'm very much hopeful that that will continue the story and show us more. I know we're going north to the Banuk territory, uh, or at least I assume that's where the Banuk territory is, because we don't see a lot of them in this game. And I, I really, really just, I want more. What's going on in the Forbidden West? How, what kind of shape is Europe in, you know? I mean, we know that some of the uh, some of the cradles weren't even able to be constructed, and some of them were overrun in the East Asia or the Australia areas. So what's going on there, you know? What did happen with the Odyssey? What's going on with Pharaoh's Thebes, or Thebes, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, complex, you know? There's so many different things I want more. God, I want more of this setting. I, I'm looking, actively looking forward to an engaged and, and want uh, additional sequels or expansions or franchises or something in this game. It'd be nice if they came out on PC so I could aim properly. <sighs> One of the things I love about it is as I sat down analyzing the structure of this game's story, all six elements are very strongly represented. You know, we have a very strong plot, the overall structure of it being literally, you know, the, the, the beginning with a bang. It's the New Hope thing from Star Wars. You know, you start off with the big, we must save the day in order to catch people's attention and give them teases of the world, right? So, classic start there, very well done. Big you know, defeat Hades, stop him from reactivating the Pharaoh's Plague, all of that stuff. Yes, awesome. Uh, one little plot hole potential there. I'll talk about that later. It's only a potential plot hole, though. There's plenty of ways to explain it away, as we discussed on stream. Uh, characterization. A lot of different NPCs and characters, which I'll discuss later, all of whom have uh, at least an additional layer of depth or complexity to them that makes them more than simply one-dimensional. Character growth. There's not a lot of characters that actually have character arcs in this game, but there are at least three that I can name, and each of those character arcs is very well done and very well presented. Uh, obviously setting. I've been praising the hell out of the setting and will continue to do so. And finally, themes. And this game is so heavy on themes that, interestingly enough... Uh, when I was digging through uh, theory crafting forums and talking this over with viewers, we came up with, I think, like seven different possible themes for this game. There's a lot of thematic uh, narrative design throughout the course of the thing. Some of it a bit obvious, some of it a little obtuse, but it's still there, right? Uh, I'm going to ca call out Golvig here. I know he's probably not watching this rumination, but uh, 
one of the things that I found fascinating was he came up with a theme that would have never even occurred to me, the theme of barbarism and whether or not your status or your... I'm probably saying this wrong. He's probably going to yell at me for this. Basically, if you have all of this knowledge and power and, and, and sophistication and civilization, or if you have none of that and you're at a bare-bones tribal level, barbarism is still part of the human equation. And he, f he found that theme in it, you know, because we see just how bad the old world was, and it was pretty bad. Uh, but then we also see how bad things are in the new world with, with, without all of that fancy technology. So, you know, a valid interpretation there. Excuse me. Gosh, I, I, I'm, I'm almost stalling here because there's so much to discuss, and I'm going to try and blaze through. I haven't even hit my notes, really. I've... I've, I've I've only been looking at my outline, which I wrote at the top. I'm basically on my first note of the notes here. That's, that's how ridiculous this game is. A lot of this is also going to be from memory, because I just finished playing the game, and I've been playing the game for the last uh, four days straight. Just get up, play the game, go to bed, get up, play the game, go to bed, take notes. My notes are some of the most disheveled notes I've ever seen. Like, I don't know if you can tell. If you can tell. It's just smatterings of text here and there, just this and this. So hopefully this won't be too disjointed as I go through this rumination. Um, wonderful attention to detail in this game as well. And I have, also have to give fantastic praise to the voice acting. While some of the voice acting is a little subpar, usually for some of the, the, the regular NPCs or the side characters, any main character, any main voiced character who has recurring lines is done fantastically. I want to give special praise to Aloy and... Uh, oh God, I suddenly can't think of her. Ashley Birch, there we go, who, who truly nails the role. She does a lot of great nuance and subtlety in her role. Absolutely fantastic job. Um, and uh, the gentleman who plays Erend, and forgive me, I don't actually know his name. He, I've never seen him in anything before. He's apparently a television uh, actor. So I, this is some guy I've never even heard of before, but he manages an astonishing amount of nuance and little details. If you'll forgive me, my favorite example of this by far is right before the final battle, you can go discuss things with him. And he says, so how are things, really? And you can already tell that he's saying this with a tone of, I know things are worse than I understand, but I would like to hear it. Then you tell him, you know, we're literally fighting for the sake of the entire planet. And the way he reacts to that has just this tone of, oh. Like, and you could just see how he is crushed by the weight of that. And it, it, you could just see him, like, hear him, I should say. Because you can close your eyes and get the same prisoner. You can hear him floundering, like, oh. You know, I, I can't even begin to comprehend that. And then he realizes he's still standing in front of his troops, his vanguard, who are going to be fighting on the front, and he immediately turns around and starts saying, and we're not going to get them past, are we? No, sir! And we're going to defeat them, are we? Yes, sir! You know, that kind of a thing. Which he does for their sake, of course, because he's their commanding officer, good captain. But he also does for his own sake, because he's completely overwhelmed. He doesn't know how to process this. And we see that a lot, people who are confronted with things beyond their ken, and how they deal with that is one of the, the more recurring elements of this story. Uh, forgive me, I don't remember her name. I think it's Nona, who was the the war chief of the Nora tribe. And uh, she's another excellent example of someone who uh, is, is dealing with things completely beyond her understanding. By so many levels of degrees, it's kind of sad, really. You know, the Nora people are so insular and so secular and are just stuck within their tiny little fragment of one region, of one country, of the world. You know, they are, they are 
microscopic, relatively speaking, and they've been called forward to deal with this. Now, they're doing it, but as, and I believe his name is Varl, forgive me, uh, as Varl was saying, they're here because the anointed called them to. They wouldn't be doing this otherwise. The only reason that they can deal with this is by putting it into their own worldview, which is their chosen of their deity has decided to tell them to come do this. So they have to put up with this. They have to come do this. The end. And we have to anoint each of them as a seeker to make sure it all fits with their current taboos and blah, 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 blah. It's just fascinating. Almost frustrating, really. This is the world that, that has been crafted <laughs> by one man's mistake. Anyways, I don't want to get into that just yet. I also want to say one other thing, uh, setting-wise, while I'm here. Uh, the world's doomed regardless of Hades. Uh, so the signal was sent, the different subroutines break off from Gaia, and that is what is referred to by the in-character people as the derangement, because now Hephaestus is no longer being controlled and managed by Gaia, or anything for that matter, and so is the one who has been arming and making the robots bit by bit more aggressive towards humans, because the humans have been hunting and gathering from the robots the same they have from beasts and, and, and from plants since forever, basically, right? So for the last, uh, I guess, 600 years or whatever it's been. Yes, I know it's been 900 years, but, you know, 600 years since things started going uh, you know, well, and so you get my point. Anyways, point being, uh, without Gaia guiding them, Hephaestus has set them into a, a basically an escalating series of warfare to the point where now thunder jaws are a relatively common thing to see here or there. And what else is he going to build in order to try and stop these human things that he views as a, an aggressor, as something that needs to be destroyed? And that's also ignoring the fact that Gaia herself flat out stated that, you know, at a certain point in time, everything is just going to completely break down as a result of having no overarching guidance. And that makes sense. Because if you look at all the machines, they're all still doing the jobs they were supposed to, but there's no guidance now. I know this, that's, that sounds weird, but I mean, imagine you know, a bunch of guys with pickaxes, and you know, the, the, we all make fun of the supervisors not knowing anything, but there is such a thing as good management. So imagine you know, the manager says, all right, I need you to dig that way five feet, I need you to dig that way six feet, I need you to do that, dig that way three feet, go, and so they can carve out this thing. Imagine the manager just vanishes, but the guys are still digging. And you can already see the problems that can arise from that, right? You know, all the machines are still doing their terraforming work, but no one's telling them what to do or how to do it or to what extent to do it. And all the information's still coming in from the tall necks or the tall grazers or whatever they're called, but it's not going to anyone. Which brings me to my next point. Uh, a lot of people have debated whether or not Gaia is salvable, if there is some data backup or copy of Gaia somewhere. Now, there is some evidence here and there, most notably in the data logs, that indicates that it is possible... And Gaia herself certainly seemed to think it was at least possible. The idea of Hephaestus being able to build a new facility for her is certainly on the table. In my opinion, that's pretty much the perfect sequel hook, regardless of all the other sequel hooks that I've already mentioned for, for future stories. Making the next big game, not a DLC or an expansion, but then a whole arc, being about finding and restoring Gaia and reconnecting it to those systems. Because the only other alternative is shutting down all of those systems. Again, this is going to be, uh, become untenable soon, probably within a matter of years, which I know sounds like a long time, but from a terraforming scale, you know, a millennia of work could be undone in years if left unchecked, even regardless of Hades. So, 
You see the overall problem here. I mentioned, uh, while we're talking about Hades, quick thing. First of all, I want to give huge props to the design of Hades' voice. Uh, it is, it's a very, it's a very sovereign style voice from Mass Effect 1, and is very well done, and I love it. It may, even makes sense, because the guy who was, who was the alpha on that was this big heavy metal guy, so of course he'd make the voice sound like that, right? But, um, I feel like they did a fantastic job. The actor nailed the sort of unusual machine-like cadence, you know, severe but lacking emotion kind of thing. Very well done. I also want to say, so this signal comes in, this transmission, and that unshackles Hades, which leads to the unshackling of all the other subroutines, right? That's how it was presented to us. That is, of course, the biggest and most obvious you know, plot hook. You know, oh god, who sent that? And I've heard plenty of theories about this, and I'll discuss a few of these later. The potential plot hole actually doesn't have to do with that, though, because I want to rewind time a little bit. So we've got the, the unshackling, we've got Hades, but Hades was still a subordinate to her, and she still had Minerva under her, which is what she used to understand uh, brute force and broadcast the shutdown codes to the Pharaoh Plague. Why are they still here? Think about that for just a second. Because once she had the override codes, once she had the master control codes that she had brute-forced to take control of the swarm, remember, that was the whole reason it started swarming out of control, was because no one had the control codes, so they couldn't tell them to stop or to direct them in any way like normally would happen. They were just doing their thing infinitely and without end, right? You get those master control codes, and you can control the swarm now. You know, straight out of StarCraft, as I referenced on the stream, too. So, why is the swarm still here? Because all Gaia did, once she had control of them, was turn them inactive and have them buried. Possibly not even literally. Could have just left them out. You know, 900 years of dirt will eventually accumulate, right? Why? Now, there are ways to explain this. Obviously, for the sake of the plot, we need the swarm to still be around, because that's then the point of the major threat, and why Hades is so interested in getting on that damn spire um, around Meridian, or next to Meridian, excuse me. But why did Gaia leave that up? Now, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts as well. Some of the ones I heard tossed out there while we were talking about this, perhaps it's just not in Gaia's capacity to think to destroy, to end life, to permanently end life, no less. Um, you know, that, that's a possibility. Uh, one person said, well, maybe they don't have a self-destruct thing. That's not really valid, because you could still have them just attack each other, or have them be turned off, and then pulled apart for parts. I mean, you've got all these terraforming bots, you could literally just have them salvaged and slowly disassembled, so that's, that's not a valid thing. But maybe Gaia didn't want to do that because, you know, sacred, sacred, sanctity of life, etc. Um, maybe it wasn't happening because... It didn't occur to Gaia to. Several people have argued as to what level of AI Gaia is. I would argue very strongly that all of the subordinate AIs are, at best, low-level VIs. And I know that's a term for Mass Effect, but I think it perfectly encapsulates this concept of something that isn't truly sentient or sapient, that merely has the capacity to uh, intellectually reason towards its goal, but otherwise has no actual sense of self or thought or independent capacity, right? So... For example, if I could just diverge for a second, Hades is a perfect example of a standard VI. While it has the ability to think and to you know, present thought, 
it is ever and always completely a slave to its base programming, which is destroy all life and all of the biosphere on the planet. And so everything and anything it does is completely adherent to that, regardless of malice or feeling or motive or goal or anything. That's just, it's always trying to accomplish that base end, nothing else. Um, so, you know, that's another example of that. But anyways, so... If Gaia, this is the third thing that I've heard brought forth, if Gaia is not actually a true AI, which I actually agree with, I think she's maybe a medium-level AI, like a high-functioning VI, uh, it might be that it literally was not within her capacity to comprehend that. She was never given any directive that would lead her towards destroying the swarm, just shutting it down so it couldn't prevent them from doing their terraforming work, because otherwise they would just you know, mess everything up all over again, right? So... It's within the realm of possibility that once they were shut down, they were no longer a variable in the equation. So they're shut down, moving on. The next possibility that I've heard posited is that Hades needed them in order to be able to accomplish his work, should things come to be. In other words, rather than wasting time and effort and resources on de-terraforming the planet, Hades just reactivates the swarm, and everyone just sits back and waits for, you know, what is it, two years, for the swarm to completely eradicate all life on the planet again, then they're shut down again, and Gaia takes over again, and we get back into it. So, interesting uh, interesting thoughts here, and as ever, I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts. <sighs> That's the only potential plot hole that I, that I was able to find in the story, uh, at least as far as large-scale stuff. Oh, gosh, what do I talk about next? Um, one of the things I love about the setting is it perfectly encapsulates dichotomy without straying. You know, one of the things I heard from people who don't know the game or the setting is like, why do these people have machines but bows and arrows? But that makes sense because this isn't a true etch-a-sketch end of the world. This is a unique case. I've talked many times about the difference between post-apocalypse and post-post-apocalypse. You know, Fallout 3 and New Vegas is the best example I could give for those two things respectively. But... This is a very unique case of a post-post-apocalypse because it's not the same as most post-post-apocalypses because most post-post-apocalypses involve, you know, we have rebuilt what we have lost. This is more of a wiping the slate clean, but not completely because the early people did have that kindergarten level of knowledge and the horrifying ramifications of that, which I'll get into in a bit, maybe. I don't know if I remember. Um, that's the most horrifying part of the whole game for me, by the way, going through the cradle and the kidnard section, that that was legitimately terrifying. That really got to me. Anyways, um, in fact, I, you know, I'll just talk about it while I'm here. Can you imagine being stuck in kindergarten until you're in your 20s? Just picture that for a moment. And that's all there is. That's all you got. You're stuck in kindergarten until your 20s. Every day, every year, for basically your entire formative life. Can you picture that? God, that just sounds so freaking terrible. And the longer it goes on, the worse it gets. As an addendum, thank God they actually had an emergency bypass. Because everything, I, I explained this on stream, everything in, in this whole thing makes perfect sense. You know, They were stuck in a recursive feedback loop. They were trying to access Apollo to, to you know, unlock the second level of education, you know, grade school. But they couldn't because Apollo wasn't there. So they were like, access, cannot access, access, cannot access. So they just kept doing the same thing over and over. Thank God someone who was programming all this stuff managed to put in an, an emergency hang on, we're out of food, open the gates. You know, this is emergency situation. Open the gates. 
Thank God someone somewhere decided to program that. Otherwise, that would have been the end of humanity right there. Way to go, Ted. Anyways. <sighs> Where was I? Um, so we've got, like, like it's not quite a true etch-a-sketch into the world. We've got people with some uh, levels of understanding. But more to the point, we've got the machine world to harvest. And the game does a really good job of showing what kind of societies would build in a world where they have to invent things like mathematics and construction and, and armor and weapons and warfare and philosophy and, and culture and religion and all these things that humanity had to build from scratch, except they're not building it from scratch because they have little bitty scraps, just tiny little scraps allowing them to go forward. And, of course, they've got a harvestable resource in the machines which, until about 19 years prior to now, were a safely harvestable resource, because they wouldn't fight back. I mean, they, they might fight back, but they wouldn't actively try to hurt and kill humans. You know, the derangement hadn't happened yet. So you've got this whole concept of, like, it's not a true Etch-a-Sketch. Imagine if you took the Etch-a-Sketch and you put it back, and there's still, like, bits and pieces of the original picture here. And now the new people are trying to learn how to, to put those pieces together. Truly fascinating setting. I'm sorry, I, I, forgive me for gushing, but I really love what they've done with this place. Um, and of course, you know, really good job of showcasing uh, the terrain. Obviously, it's a little weird going straight from Colorado Springs, basically over the Rockies to Utah, but <laughs> I do love the different biomes they show here. The jungle, the desert, and the, the, the snowy area. You know, really good job of showcasing the variety there. Uh, but I'm getting off topic. Let's uh, let's finally talk about the game proper. Let's move on here, and actually start looking at my notes. So, one of the things I love early on is so so the game doesn't hold back its initial twists at all. Like it it, it lays it right out for you. Literally in the first section of gameplay in the in the entire game is you going through a ruins of the old world. You know, you could tell even if you had ignored all the information leading up to the release of the game, you can tell bang right off the beginning, this is a post apocalyptic story of some kind or another. It's like, oh my gosh, what happened? And we get this focus. And let me just say, I like the focus. Uh, that was another one of my little nitpicks, the fact that you can't, that you, you have to walk slowly while using the focus. That, that kind of got on my nerves. But anyways, the focus is a great way of doing what a lot of game, other games already do in gameplay. You know, following tracks or identifying enemies or uh, an eagle vision, you know, from Assassin's Creed or Witcher Senses from Witcher 3. It's a great way of doing that in lore, and it makes perfect sense. Oh, you know. And of course, it also helps to inform why Aloy is so different, because she has an advantage very, very few other people do. She has had a focus since a child, and as a child, she can then grow up and learn with this thing. If you had given a focus to an adult, he'd be like, uh, and he might be able to put it together, like uh, Silence did, for example. But I would argue very strongly that Silence is the exception. Most people get that thing and be like, oh, God, what's all this crap? It must be a message from God, or, you know, whatever it is they would interpret that as. Instead, she just sees it as a way to, I'm doing it on the wrong side of my head, it is a way to, to understand and learn and grow. And it helps to shape her. It helps to, to explain why she is so different. Um, and this is another thing I want to talk about. Aloy herself. I know I'm not in the character section yet, so this isn't really about her character. This is more about her humanity. It would be very easy for Aloy to come across as a Mary Sue. 
by arguments, most player characters in most video games are Mary Sues to some extent or another. Now, anybody who knows me knows that I am pretty strict about the definition of a Mary Sue. You have to be really bad into a Mary Sue territory for me to actually say, okay, that's a Mary Sue, uh, like like the, the frickin' scimitar over in Star Trek Nemesis. I know that's a ship, but it's still a textbook example of a Mary Sue, in my opinion. But she doesn't manage that, and I think the biggest reason why, in addition to the excellent voice acting, is the simple humanity of her presentation. She doesn't get stuck up, she doesn't automatically win at everything, she doesn't automatically get along with everyone, you know, blah blah blah. Instead, she's very human. Uh, there's a couple of specific moments I want to draw your attention. Uh, one of them is when she's first entering... I can't think of the name of the village. The main village, Mother's Cradle or whatever, of the Nora. And she's first entering there. And she's like utterly out of her element. This is a woman who's never been in a city before, who's never been in a social gathering like this before. She hasn't been a completely feral child. She's been raised by Rost, and so she understands some level of social dynamics, but not this. This is such a completely alien environment to her, and she comes across as wonderfully hesitant and anxious and nervous, and you could just feel that anxiety in her dialogue and in her presentation, and it's phenomenal. She doesn't stop thinking, you know, it doesn't go too far. Uh, she's still trying to make her way through it, because this is still something she wants. But you can tell she is immensely uncomfortable with the whole thing, and, and I love the, the blank humanity of that. I also love... Uh, the way that most of the characters around her come across as simple archetypes and yet are presented to be more than that when things are different. This is actually one of the other uh, recurring themes in the game. And this is a recurring theme in a lot of fiction and, to be blunt, is also true in real life. Uh, to parallel this to Witcher 3 again really quick, I've mentioned before... Uh, oh God, I suddenly can't think of his name. The Bard in Witcher 3, how he's kind of a terrible human being, but he's not actually... Because when the chips are down, he has Geralt's back, right? I've often said that people... I shouldn't even often say I know this to be true because I've seen this in real life. You don't know who you really are. You don't know what you're really going to be like until things get actually serious. And I've noticed this is something that's presented often in fiction. You have someone who's a jerk or who's upset or who's unpleasant, but they're that way because they're in a normal environment. It's okay for them to do that. But when the chips go down, when things get serious... That determines what kind of a person you really are. Draco Malfoy is actually an excellent example of this over in Harry Potter. Draco was a dick, right? But when things got serious, no pun intended, when things got real, like, you see where I'm going with this? Actually, Lucius Malfoy is actually a better example of what I'm talking about. Because he comes across as this supremely evil person until things got real, and we see that he's not that bad at all. Voldemort. He's that bad. And we see that kind of different people, because some people, when things get serious, they become better people. But other people, when things get serious, they become worse people, like Pharaoh, for example. So, uh, we see this in several cases, but my, the one I want to pull up most specifically is Bast. I wrote down his name just to make sure I wouldn't forget it. Uh, Bast, towards the beginning. He's, this, he's just a prick. He's just a typical schoolyard bully. But all of that vanishes 
the moment they start getting under attack. At this moment, the moment that happens, all of that stupidity and snot-nosedness just goes away and is supplanted by, this is my tribe, I will fight to defend it, boom. And he ends up dying trying to do so, perhaps foolishly, but nevertheless. And I like that. There's a lot of simple humanity that helps flesh out a lot of the characters in this game. Moving on, moving on. Now, I have a note here that I wrote in jest. Aloy is Batman. See, she falls into a cave. So my first thought in my head was, oh, so now she's going to turn into Batman. The second thing that happens as you're going through the cave is a bunch of bats fly by. And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> that had to have been deliberate. Now, I like Rost as a character. He is a fantastic example of a zealot. And I'll talk about that in just a second here. But I like... I like his presentation, I like his voice actor, I like his direction. The only thing I dislike about him is that he had giant neon signs glaring over him saying, I'm gonna die. And I don't think that was really necessary, personally. Because the usual literary purpose behind the mentor character dying is to push the hero forward. But to be blunt, I don't think Aloy needed that. She already had her drive. This game, ultimately is about two different paths of discovery. Aloy discovering who and what and why she is, and humanity discovering who and what and why they are. And these two paths walk in perfect parallel thanks to the construction of the rather tight, I might add, plotted narrative. So I don't think Ross's death was necessary. It would have almost been interesting if after all this telegraphing he ends up living and it's like, oh, it would also be kind of character-appropriate because it would be the second time he embraced death and kept living. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, okay, now what? You know. But I mentioned the zealot thing. Let me talk about that briefly. We see in this game three, well, four, actually, uh, true zealot characters. Well, five. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot. But there's four I want to talk about in specific. Uh... Actually, three right now I want to talk about in specific. Because I want to talk about Rost, and I wrote down their names so I wouldn't forget it, uh, Lansra and Tisa. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. It's the two matriarchs, the two ones who really have a lot of the dialogue of the Nora tribe. Most fiction goes out of its way to show a zealot-type character as a bad person. Like Lansra, you know. She, she literally spits at Aloy's feet after she saves them. She literally wanted to not allow the people to evacuate into the caves and basically was willing to let them die for the sake of her dogma, right? That's how fiction usually portrays someone who has strong religious beliefs or strong beliefs. Both of those are separate things. I want to make that clear. But in this, we see two characters who have strong beliefs, both religious and personal, who adhere to them without being terrible people. Tisa, the, the other matriarch, and Rost. Rost was a true believer. This is a man who, after all of this stuff, who has actually all gone all the way to the Forbidden West, which we know so little about. Another plot thread dangling there. Although we know Carson City's there. <laughs> um, and then came all the way back to Colorado, to Colorado Springs, to die just outside the sacred land. And I want you to think about that for a moment, because he could have easily come, if, he, if it was really that important to him to die in the sacred lands, he could have easily gone right back in, slipped in, nobody would have noticed him, find a cave somewhere, you know, or maybe like, like go under a little brush or stay under a tree and just sit there and die. He could have done that. He could have broken the code and no one would have known it. But he didn't. Because he's a true believer. Because he really does believe in the tenets of what he has adhered to. So he went up to the border. 
and then passed out. It was other people who violated those tenants and then brought him in and left him in an awkward situation. But then Tisa, of course, I really hope I'm saying her name right, she's the kind of person who is willing to seek compromise and willing to adapt her beliefs but never strays from them. She does still believe in the All-Mother. She still believes in the Anointed. Still, she still believes in the security door. I'm sorry. It has never stopped amusing me that they worship a security door. <laughs> One person in chat was like, no, 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 it's a talking door. And I'm like, you're right. It could have been a tickle me elbow. It had the same impact. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Mm. Anyways. Point being... She never really strayed from her belief. There was no awakening of, oh, all I've lived is a lie. Instead, she just looked at things through the lens of her belief, but didn't let that interfere with her using her damn brain. Because Lantra, the, the more negative person, and this is, this is something I feel the game does very well, and it does this with many characters. Most of the people who are bad guys... Are, you know, you could say, well, the religious zealots are the bad guys, but there's plenty of religious zealots who are good guys. The bad guys are not the ones who see the world through the view, through the lens of their belief system. They're the ones who refuse to see things through that lens. Who, who No, I'm saying this wrong. Give me a second. Let me, let me try and rephrase this. They're the people who try to bend the world to their view rather than expanding their view to the world. Uh, nowhere is this more obvious than Helis, the guy who was so twisted up and turned around about how could any of this be happening. It, it doesn't make sense, but clearly now all is true, all prophecy is true. And Helis is a moron. It's actually probably his biggest character trait is that he's an idiot. And, and we just keep seeing evidence and evidence and evidence about this throughout the course of the game. He is like Lansra. And he refuses to think. And that's really a key thing, too. It's possible to have a belief or, or, or a, 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 a credo or a code or, or something that you adhere to without, without becoming a mindless idiot, without becoming a machine, right? The, and obviously this scene was done for humor's sake with Lantra, because you talk to her and she's like, you need to walk forward with your eyes open. Okay, then you talk to her again. I have my eyes open now. Anything else? Yes, keep your mouth shut. So the next time you talk to her, she says, That's not thinking. And that's the point. Obviously it was a funny scene and it was, it was fantastic, but the whole point is she's not thinking at all. She is merely obeying. Kind of like a machine. Gosh, where do I start? What do I talk about next? Let's talk about let's talk about politics really quick. Just really quick. I'm just going to cover this in brief. So, one of the things I find fascinating is obviously the derangement is a world-changing event given what it happens with Hades and with Hephaestus as I've, I've already talked about. Never mind, Lord knows what's going on with Demeter or Poseidon or anything like that, but even just those two things, obvious world-shaping events, obviously shapes the events of the plot, but it also reshaped the local political infrastructure. Once the derangement happened, the previously relative balance and not so much peace, but at least stability between the different tribes was utterly shattered, because now all of a sudden the machines are attacking us, which has never happened before. Well, how do we explain that? 
And of course, Mr. Sun King, I'm incredibly insane, decided, well, clearly the sun's pissed at us. So let's go start raiding other tribes to get more sacrifices to appease the sun, which obviously would never work. More of that whole not thinking thing I mentioned earlier. And this, of course, led to a long-standing war. The Red Raids is what they're called between the Karja and everyone else in the nearby territories to the point where an actual alliance of multiple other forces and Karja forces was, was formed specifically to combat and led to a civil war. And this, of course, led to a very progressive thinker, uh, Avad, I remembered his name, Avad, who ends up taking the throne and is now trying to lead the actual Karja into the future, but also led to the formation of a completely subsect of them, because now the Karja no longer have the full sundom. This other part over here has now been claimed by the Shadow Karja and their allegiance to the Old King and blah, 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 blah. There's all this mess going on. All this political intrigue and fascination and, and war and politics and all that great stuff. And it all happened because someone sent a signal and the, the subroutines detached from Gaia. And I find that just fascinating in its own right. Because it's a great way of showing how your effects aren't, don't just affect the obvious. You know, your actions, excuse me, don't just affect the obvious. But they also have recurrent effects on the nearby surroundings. Let's talk about the old world. So, I'm trying to think where to start here. We don't know a lot about the old world. We know little details. Um, automation was rampant. It was so rampant that they were having the worst series of economic recessions in human history. Because so, so, so many people, not just in the military, but in the industrial sectors as well, were out of jobs. Because it was all being done by machines. And it, there was this widespread food issues and the crises that was going on in Europe and in, in the North America area. All of these things are referenced in brief. Things that could be fleshed out more and I hope are in the future. Like, like in some kind of encyclopedia, Warcraft Chronicles kind of thing would be awesome for this setting. Um... They just kind of hint at these things and how they were so significant, especially since it's one of the reasons that helps to explain part of why so many people took up the, the call to arms when Operation Enduring Victory was called, because people were called in to service, to do something, to have a job. And I know that sounds weird, and I imagine most of my viewers don't really understand this perspective, but when you get to a certain state of mind, a job, any job is something that you're going to just, yes, yes. And we hear about the effects and actions of what the Pharaoh Plague is actually doing to the world. Obviously killing lots of people. You know, they talk about the, the, the dolphins that were uh, chummed. Um, they talk about the, uh, the mango plants, kind of showcasing what the, the, the machines could do. But they also talk about how the environment itself, how the atmosphere started becoming toxic because it simply wasn't able to sustain normal life because an overwhelming percentage of the flora and fauna of the world had been removed from it. The initial projections were 15 months for the Pharaoh Plague to wipe out all life on the planet. Think about that for a second. It ended up taking a little over two years, actually. And that's the next concept I want to talk about, because the, the game's plot, if you just follow the main missions, does something very smart. It shows us 
it, it, it peels back the layers of what happened bit by bit, of course, but it hits very specific angles of approach in doing so, because the first thing we find out about the Old World is from the military perspective. We see exactly what a Horus is really capable of, and honestly, those Horus things are the most damn terrifying thing in this, in this setting, as far as just, oh my god, holy crap. It's a shame we don't actually end up getting to fight a Horus in the game, but I'm not even sure it would be possible, because... Oh, um, we get to see exactly what those things are capable of. We see the perspective of the actual military men. We see the perspective of the enlisted recruits, militia, skirmishers. We see the perspective of the officers, who actually know what's going on. We see the perspective of the high-ranking staff, who actually know what's going on. You know, we see the perspective of the people one, who are family members of the military. And we, we see all of this. We see all of this detail showcasing what's going on with the war, with Operation Enduring Victory. That's the first piece of information that's shown to us. And they, they give little details, which I dot, jotted a couple down here. Um, Europe was on fire. Like, so much of Europe was on fire, it was causing this near-eternal rainstorm. Because the environment had reached a point where it was constantly trying to acclimate itself you know, as I've said many times, a storm is uh, the atmosphere. This is a very basic explanation, but a storm is an atmosphere, uh, trying an atmospheric condition, trying to restore balance. Right? That's the whole point of a storm. You know, things have become imbalanced in some way. A storm resets that balance. But because things were so thrown off by the mass devastation in Europe and Australia that there was just this eternal storm, this eternal rain, which was slowly becoming ashen and toxic as a result of the pollution and the devastation and the lack of anything helping to restore that. Um, and, and then we, they talk about the fact that one of the common tactics they were using, because it had gotten so desperate, was trying to literally collapse buildings on top of the enemy robots, just devastating whole cities as a way to slow down the swarm. You know? Um... They talk about the, the economic collapse that they were on the verge of before the swarm actually broke out, and how, you know, all of these resources... How do I put this? They talk about... They talk about all these people being united together in this in this massive operation and you can tell that the people in charge took this situation very seriously that they looked at this as a all bets are off kind of a situation kind of the inverse of what Darth Malak does over in KOTOR to explain what I mean a little bit here Darth Revan would move in and conquer but Darth Malak would move in and destroy well this is kind of the opposite because this is a defensive action but rather than trying to defend in a way so that we would have a t be able to reclaim our cities tomorrow, we are defending in a way that we can't reclaim our cities tomorrow because we're destroying them in the process. Literally, obviously. But the point is, no expense was spared. No effort was spared. People started doing absolutely insane, bonkers tactics that otherwise wouldn't even be feasible. To be blunt, the details we hear about Operation Enduring Victory is probably one of the best examples of a Reaper invasion that I've ever heard. You know what I mean? From Mass Effect? This is how the Reaper invasion should have been presented, right here. Uh, well, maybe not exactly, but you get the idea. The, 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 just the concepts of going way above and beyond the, the call in order to accomplish this. And that leads me to the next thing I want to talk about. Anyone who's played this game knows, and obviously I've been spoiling all over the place, the, the fate of the world hanged on the balance of 8 millimeters. Um, it's always the little things, right? Eight millimeters. 
An 8mm seal nearly destroyed the world. But what's really important to keep in mind is that enough time was had for Elizabeth Sobek to go out there and manually close that to, I think it was 1.2 millimeters, thereby allowing no energy emissions to get out and allowing Gaia to function. 8 millimeters. But here's the really important part. She had time to go out and do that and then get the hell out of there before the swarm detected her. In fact, she made it all the way to Carson City, which is kind of surprising, but whatever. Think about that for a moment. Just, just really think about that. She had time to do that so they didn't detect them. Even though they were en route and they were 72 hours out at most when they went into the facility. I know this is a hard concept for me to explain because I've tried to do this on stream. I want you to just picture as if every soldier, I know this doesn't, isn't linear, but just picture if every soldier who died, who, who paid in blood to push back the Pharaoh Swarm bought one second, okay? Now, I as we know, this came within a matter of days. Just 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. Three days at absolute most. That's how close they came to failing completely. Pushed them back for six months. Pushed back that swarm. That's what Operation Enduring Victory did. That's something that really resonates with me because they succeeded. Operation Enduring Victory won. It wasn't in vain. I mean, this, this story is a grand tragedy on epic scale. But in this one place, it was not a tragedy. It was a success. It was a triumph. Every life spent, every drop of blood that was burnt... Every single one of them contributed to this victory. Because again, if you think of every single person who died merely bought one second of additional time of the billions who were dying, of the hundreds of millions who were fighting, think for a moment about how many of those... It's not hard to imagine those people deserting or, or fleeing in, in the face of what they were facing, or just, or just burying their heads in the sand. Total gibbering madness because they can't comprehend what's happening to them, right? It wouldn't take that many people to have decided not to fight. And if enough people, and it doesn't even take that many, a few thousand, we did the math on stream, I forget it right now, but a few thousand people, if they had decided not to fight, might not have bought those additional hours or those additional days that they needed. But because every single one of those people did fight, we had that time, they were able to get there, they were sealed into the, the, the place, Elysium was probably sealed, we don't know a lot about it, and she had time to close that 8mm gap. That means every life burnt was burnt well. They died heroes. I'm actually kind of tearing up just thinking about it. It's, it's kind of astonishing, really. In a story that is so dark and has so many horrible elements of, of human nature to it, humanity, you know, the, one of the one of the, the alphas in, uh, in in the Gaia Prime facility, it says in a thing, you know, humanity died with a whisper. That's not true. Humanity died at ramming speed, and it worked. So that's the first perspective we see. Next thing we see is we see what the scientists were doing. That's all external. That's the rest of the world. Then we see the scientists who were working 20-hour days, 80-hour weeks minimum, burning themselves out, constantly trying to get their work done, knowing exactly what was they were facing, literally having to take drugs to be able to sleep, constantly churning themselves through this. 
because no pressure, but literally every second that you delay is another second that people are dying for. And while it is this, it's, it's a great tonal difference because we see absolute horror and, and pride and tragedy and, and, and triumph as we see the military external perspective. When we see the scientific internal perspective, there's this tone of just one tense note that's just hanging in the air, if you can just picture that. As we're going through the whole science facility and, and learning what these people were doing and how they were trying to accomplish it and what they were trying to get done. And it's like, oh, God, we need to do this and we need to do this and we need to accomplish this and we need to do this. And you can tell by the tone of the voice acting and the, the tone of the, the logs you read in that area, these people knew that they were on the clock. And there's so many what-ifs. So many things could have gone wrong or worse than wrong. You know, if, as, as Elizabeth herself pointed out, if not for the fact that they started the Lightkeeper protocol, the Prime facility would have never been set up for people, and they never would have been able to go in there and finish the work on Gaia. But if they had continued going the Lightkeeper protocol, then they might not have had time to be able to go in there and, you know? Every hour had to be spent very carefully and very efficiently, getting as much done as possible. And the brilliant work! Oh my god, whoever, whoever wrote this game obviously sat down with some actual shrinks or some actual uh, textbooks and really did their work on psychology. Because the whole bit with the counselors and processing people, you know, talking about them, and the three options, the way they presented the three options, you know, work with us. And there's this huge thing about working with us. And then you can also uh, choose to be voluntarily put into prison, basically. You'll be made comfortable, but you're being put in there because we can't risk any, any word or any signal getting out. Or euthanasia. And they barely talk about euthanasia. And they also mention there's a, there's a mandatory period of you have to think about it before you, you, that we will actually euthanize you. And the whole time there's all these psychological tricks they'll be doing to try and convince you to work on the project. And it's, I, I, again, this is lore-run material, really, but if, if you saw the stream, you know what I'm talking about. If you've played the game, you know what I'm talking about. They go into immense detail on exactly what these counselors are supposed to do to try and convince these people, guide these people, trick these people into working on this project. Normally I'm against, this, against that kind of psychological manipulation, but in this case, it's just one of those rare cases where I think it was justified. Because they needed those people. These weren't just random people off the street. Every single one of these people was extradited. I mentioned earlier, no expense spared, right? They talk about sit layer after layer of city block that's just being replaced by bunkers and barracks, right? But also the extraditions. I want you to imagine right now, I mean, we see this in movies, right? You know, I need the best team in the world. Okay, well, I'll get the ragtam team together. And they, you see the, the guy in the suit who goes to this specific place. He's like, sir, I'm here to get... Even the Avengers did this kind of a concept. Um... But usually that's just kind of hand-waved. Here it's not. Here it's, it's emphasized just how significant of a feat that really is. I, obviously, I don't know the political landscape perfectly well of the, the world of 2060, whatever it is, but um, picture, like, Germany right now, in real life, suddenly and without warning, basically kidnapping people from across the globe, basically against their will, and not saying anything about it. Now, obviously, at the, by the time they started doing that, the plague was already on them, and they were already in crisis mode, so probably people wouldn't pay that much attention to it, but it helps to show just how significant of a thing this was, how there was no expense spared. We are finding these people, and we're getting them in here. The end. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. 
And then, of course, the third thing we see after we go through that, after we go through the scientist's perspective, we see the, the cradle. We see Eleuthia, right? I mentioned the horror of that. The kindergarten forever thing. The Apollo recursive loop. It probably won't surprise anyone that I care about lore. <laughs> I don't mean myself. I don't care about myself. But I mean lore. You know, history. Culture. Art. I've talked on my show so many times. I, I've mentioned many, many times. This is my favorite example. The missing Doctor Who episodes. A lot of you probably know what I'm talking about. If you don't, uh, there are certain episodes of old Doctor Who uh, from the first and second Doctors which are gone. And at this point are probably permanently gone. We will never get them back. Um, that is history, that is culture, that is art that has been lost. And it's something that has happened many, many times throughout human history. The, I, I made this speech on, on camera about the, the Library of Alexandria, how even if you aren't a, a study of history, even if you don't care about the past or haven't actually you know, really cared about history or, or uh, progression of, of technological development in, in human society, you probably have still heard about the Library of Alexandria and what happened there, right? And the best part is, and this was pointed out as well, we don't even know what we lost. We have no idea. Like, so many things, the, the only bits of records we have are from people who were borrowing things at the time or from people who wrote about it after the event, right? Like, lost, gone. This kind of thing devastates me. This kind of thing is a travesty, a tragedy to me. So the devastation of Apollo probably is the thing that hits me the most in the whole game. Um, that's something that just... Ugh, you know... That much knowledge and information gone is... I, I legitimately don't have words for what that would mean. It's not even all of human history. They even talk about that as they're setting up Apollo. They can't get all of human history in there. They either don't have space, they don't have time, or there's some things they couldn't get access to. They couldn't get it in time. Remember, this was on a crunch time. A lot of the, the flaws of the Gaia Protocol and the, the issues with it can be actually very easily explained by the fact that these guys were on a deadline. They had six months or something like that. Or no, six months is uh, the wrong direction. They had a... Uh, uh, it was like 18 months. It was just about two years. They mentioned the exact date, forgive me. They had about two years to do this. Two years to do the impossible. That is serious crunch time. So it wasn't even all of human history that was saved. It was just as much as they could get in there. Gone. Now, it has been mentioned before and will be mentioned again, and I want to bring this up here as well, that it is possible that some copy of Apollo still exists... Or that, um, you know, some, uh, you know how Hollywood likes to do it, uh, undelete or restore the data, even though you sh that isn't how that should work that way. So it's possible we'll get Apollo back in the future. I don't know. But what I do know is that this loss is the truly great crime of Ted Farrow. But I, I just realized I don't actually want to talk about that just yet. Why don't I talk about something that seems a little off-topic? Because I want to talk... Well, no, 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 no. Let's talk about characters. So I wrote some character names down here. Um, I want to talk about them. Just covering them in brief. Little things I want to discuss. First of all, Olin. Um, now, Olin's a fairly typical example of a character of his type. But I think he was still done fairly well. The kind of person who was being held against his will, you know, for the sake of his family in order to betray you. He also serves as a great... Uh, what I like to think of as a tutorial villain. Um, he's not actually the first act villain. If anything, that would probably belong to Helis, even though you don't kill him until the very end. But uh, 
He's a great tutorial villain because usually the purpose of a tutorial villain is to serve as an entry point or a, or a gate, if you will, narratively speaking, to the greater world beyond. So Olin comes across as this big, horrible betrayer early on, and all, so much of the early focus of the story is hunting down Olin and figuring out what's going on. Then we learn that he's being controlled by the Eclipse people and that he didn't actually betray. And you can actually choose to kill him or not, but either way, you then have the option to save his family. Um... I think they did a good job with that. I also like how he doesn't actually... Like, you don't actually forgive him, even if you decide to let him live. And we see uh, a couple other uh, types of, of early archetypes like this as well, which I'm not going to go into. I already talked about Bast. You know, I already talked about uh, Vral a little bit. Or Varl, excuse me. Uh, we have uh, Vanasha. Vanasha is an interesting character. Uh, very awesome presentation. I, li I like the way she, she came across. Uh, especially since my first gut reaction with her was, oh, she's going to betray me. But then she didn't. She was just someone who was underground working on the whole situation. And she's the kind of person who I like because she's pragmatic enough to realize reality, but still... Mm, uh, I'm trying to think of the word here. Sentimental enough to feel about it, you know? Uh, I especially like her line where she mentions, man, I've been spending two years working underground and dealing with this crap to make this happen, and you get all the credit. I see how it is. <laughs> um, uh, Petra. I liked Petra as a character. She didn't have much screen time, but she was enjoyable to see. And probably one of the best examples of the Asaram that we see. I haven't really talked about the three major tribes, and I honestly don't think I'm going to. Uh, there's some cultural stuff I could discuss, there, there are variant religions, uh, inferences from real life, but that's kind of a whole other thing. It's just part of the fantastic setting building they do. Uh, I really want to talk about Erend, though. I liked Erend from the first moment I saw him. He came across as someone who was reasonable and used his damn head, and that's something I always like. He gets up there and says, hey, yo, I'm part of this too, yeah? This guy is here to apologize, to literally, formally, politically apologize for what happened. Now, it's no surprise the Nora react the way they do. They are very insular. Even when the Nora were on better terms with the nearby tribes, they didn't exactly welcome them. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like they had regular trade or regular relations. And you, you got to see the beginnings of what might what might become an actual connection between the Nora and the Karja under Avad, um, as a result of the consequences of this game. But you have to consider, so we've already got that insular, secular thing. Now we've got the fact that for the last ten or so years, the Karja, under the Mad King, had been doing the Red Raids and, and charging in and ca capturing people to go sacrifice them and all this horrible, terrible stuff. Um, so I liked Aaron. I already mentioned his wonderful human moment later on, but I think what I like most about him is he's probably the closest thing to an O'Brien we have in this game. Very relatable, very down-to-earth. He's not some big, great captain. He's not some fantastic warrior. In fact, if anything, he spends so much of his character arc sitting in his sister's shadow. You know, she was the responsible one. She was the better one. I barely know what I'm doing. And he just kind of stumbles his way forward. It's very human. I love it. Um... Avad himself, of course, he's kind of a, a, an archetype. He's the progressive leader archetype. You know, I, I have now taken control. Uh, I want to, and he, and he mentions this, you know, we, we need to have more uh, rights for women. We need to have more uh, cultural understanding about the cultures. We need to have more positive relations with other tribes, etc., etc. Um, 
he's still a good character. He's still well done. And he still has his own human flaws. My favorite one, of course, is when he very blatantly hits on Aloy and basically asks her to become his new consort. He doesn't say it like that, but that's what he means. And I love that because, again, it adds a little, just, just a little sliver of humanity to what would otherwise be a, a typical archetype. Something the game does a lot of. Uh, I also mentioned Duvall. Duvall's an idiot, but what I like about him, as weird as this may sound, is that he's an idiot who's brilliant. He's very good with technology. He's very good with his, his tinkering, uh, even for an Osirum. And he's the kind of person who wants to, to have his revenge and to kill all these people. <laughs> why? Well, the why basically boils down to the fact that he's an idiot. You know, the, <laughs> I'm sorry, but... Talking about the why gets into the whole clan mentality thing. There's a whole lot of sins of the father that goes throughout this whole game. And it makes sense for people that are tribal states, right? You know, you hurt my tribe, I hurt your tribe. It just makes sense, right? I mean, it makes sense to other people. It's never made sense to me. I've talked about this before. But, you know, that whole clan mentality, you know, line mentality is actually what I would call it. I'm on this side of the line. You're on that side of the line. If you hurt some completely unrelated person on my side of the line, I hurt some completely unrelated person on your side of the line. That happens all over the place. So that's basically what Duvall is doing. You know, you have hurt me, you have hurt mine, and you are still the enemy because you did that, and you stole the glory of the kill from me, and you stole my wife from me, and so, screw it, I'm going to destroy a whole city because, well, they're on the same side of the line that you are. Yeah. Um, a couple things I want to talk about here, now that we're getting towards the end here. Uh, I want to talk about Helis a little bit more, and Pharaoh. Uh, so, Helis, as I mentioned, is, is a flaming moron, but definitely a zealot, and very much the I have to, to make everything fit my mentality. I, honestly, while he gets a lot of character development in this game, the thing that really stuck with me most is his own log about when he, he was disgusted by the opulence and comfort of his bed and decided to go lay on the cold stone. You know, he struck me as like this, this teenager kind of thing, you know what I mean? Like, no, life is pain! <laughs> I, I, I even laughed at it straight out on the, on the, on the camera. It was fantastic. Um, but he strikes me as that kind of a person. But he does still fit that archetype. Or I shouldn't say the archetype, but, but the mentality that they've been showing of someone who has a strong belief structure but refuses to think. He never thinks the whole game. There's this one audio clip you get towards almost the very end of the game where uh, Hades gives the kill order on silence to Helis. Helis then immediately says, yes, of course, that makes perfect sense, because made-up reasoning, made-up reasoning, made-up reasoning. He was ordered to kill one of their greatest allies, who, who literally led to their rise to power, because he just doesn't think. Just like Karza, or Lansra, excuse me. Just like Lansra and her... Mm -hmm. Because, see, they can get across the same point thematically in a humorous fashion but also in a very deadly serious one, because Helis is a bastard. Um, but I wanted to compare him to Far Pharaoh. Now, I haven't really talked about Pharaoh or Elizabeth a lot, or Aloy, or Silence, and that's on purpose. <sighs> Pharaoh wanted this whole innocent world, right? Or did he? It's worth noting that even to this day, we have some suspicions about the nature of his motivation, why he just deleted Apollo, why he did all this. But what I find most fascinating about Pharaoh is that he is ultimately a zealot in his own right. He was just a zealot who had someone who balanced him out. He had Elizabeth. 
when she was around, he did great things. You notice that? The rise in prominence of Pharaoh Industries came when she was still in his employ, when she was still with him. I don't mean romantically, although there probably there are some romantic overtones there, but I mean when she was managing him, as they actually say in the game, he did great things, and then she left, and then he created the Pharaoh Plague. I know he isn't solely responsible for this. I would actually strongly argue that Ted Pharaoh is actually kind of pseudo-innocent of the initial crime. I'll talk about that more in a second. But then she comes back and they accomplish this amazing, impossible thing with, with the Gaia Project and, and Zero Dawn, but then she leaves again, and then he does something terrible again. You notice that? People like Helis can exist and function in society and not be terrible, disgusting people. They just need other people to help balance them out. They need other perspectives. They need external mindsets. Otherwise, what you have is effectively an echo chamber, but the worst kind of echo chamber, the kind that's only in your own head. And I'm not saying this as a joke to say their head is a cavernous skull. You get what I mean, though. The idea that when you just have yourself to talk to, you tend to talk yourself into things. I bet a lot of you know what I'm talking about with that. So Helis, of course, had no one. He had his wife, who was an echo chamber, basically. I will come sleep on the gold store and floor with you because I am also a moron. <laughs> God, that's ridiculous. Um... Pharaoh, of course, let, let's talk about Ted Pharaoh. So I've heard a lot of people spit a lot of venom at Ted Pharaoh, and a lot of people in character and out in discussion forums have said that Ted Pharaoh is this horrible, disgusting human being for the Pharaoh plague, not for the Apollo thing. Now that has always confused me, because I think the game makes it pretty clear that he's not even primarily responsible for the Pharaoh plague, the thing they named after him. Yes, he was the head of the, the industry. Yes, he was the kind of person who talked people into it. But think about how many engineers and how many programmers and how many industrial military complex people in suits and how many military personnel like General Harris, who was a great character, by the way, love Harris, how many of these people were all involved in making sure that this swarm would be made and that a glitch would end up happening? How many people are involved? It was a system. I'm just going to say this as bluntly as I can. It was a system that crafted the Pharaoh Plague, not a person. And when he found out about it, it is interesting to note that he was willing to eat crow immediately. And that, I think, says something about him. And this is one thing that's truly strange about his character. General Harris, who was also involved in the creation of this devastation, pretty much immediately manned up. You know, he was part of the problem. But when the chips were down, I told you that's a recurring thing, when the chips were down, he manned up and said, this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it, we're going to do the best damn job we can. And he tried to make up for his crimes. And in his final eulogy, he signed off without the general title. I loved that. That, that hit the field right there. Um, Pharaoh, when he found out the reality of what he was facing, he ate crow immediately, dropped everything, brought her in, said, this is serious, this is bad, I need your help, now let's go. And when she gave her presentation of this is how this is going to work, he's like, okay, let's, let's make this happen. Let's do this. A little bit hesitant because of the shock, but still fully on board. Both men pretty much immediately tried to make up for their mistakes. The difference is Harris died a hero. We actually find his corpse right by his final transmission. Harris died a hero trying to hold the line. You know, God, I, I swear I'm not meaning these Mass Effect parallels to keep coming up, but whatever. <laughs> Can never get away from Mass Effect, right? 
He tried to hold the line. He died holding the line. Pharaoh tried to get involved with this whole project, but it was so beyond him that ultimately he was just the, per the money person. And he insisted on his whole Thebes thing. I really hope we follow through with that in the future. The difference, though, is that Harris didn't need one other person to talk to to accomplish these feats or to try to strive for this end. He just did it. Pharaoh needed that other person to help balance him out, like I mentioned earlier, like Helis could have used. And so as soon as she's gone, as soon as Miss Elizabeth is gone, Pharaoh just starts descending hard. Starts talking to himself, basically. And when you're talking to yourself, all you hear is an echo. Convinces himself of this thing. I find it fascinating, I think I've already mentioned this, that we don't know exactly why he took out Apollo. It's implied that it was the whole diseased mentality thing. You know, new slate, no more people like me will exist in the new world. I find that curious, because another valid interpretation of his motive there is, I don't want anyone to know just how involved in the destruction of the world I was. My legacy is that important to me. I don't know. Both are valid interpretations, if, and if you have any others, I'm, I'm, I would love to hear it. But his final scene where he's basically saying, I'm going to kill all you people, to the alphas, that's a brilliant scene. Brilliantly directed, brilliantly voice acted. The guy who plays Pharaoh does a great job. He's, he's stuttering, he's like, I've, I've come. And you can tell he's trying to give across this big, grandiose speech, but he keeps stuttering at the first word, and then he has to interrupt himself, stop trying to get into the system. And then he starts to try to go back to his speech, and says, stop trying to get into the system! <laughs> And he can't, he can't do it. He can't give this grand speech. He is, ironically, ultimately, a very small, pathetic man. When the chips were down, Ted Farrow was a small, pathetic man. And so, what I love about that scene is it says so much about the dual nature. And this is, in my opinion, the big thing. This is what I'm leading up to here. One of the things that the game emphasizes most is that you need balance. You have to have both perspectives in order to be able to be able, be able to move forward you need and the two most common sides of this equation are knowledge and sentimentality because when ted farrow you know does that and he mentions he's deleted apollo you notice by the way everyone just rushes over to the to the woman who crafted the apollo thing and immediately tries to console her or him i think it was a her i'm pretty sure it was a her uh you know it's like oh my god and then he kills the alphas to make sure no one can stop him of course but what I love about it is Aloy looks at that from the sentimental perspective, as she always has. Even, I wasn't actually picking sentimental options, by the way. She still has the sentimental perspective. He murdered those people. And Silence looks at it from the knowledge perspective. He murdered that history. Now, I will defend Ted Farrell when it comes to the first crime. But the second crime was knowing, willing premeditated murder of history and of people. And that's just... Wow. <laughs> that is messed. But I'd like to talk about Silence and Aloy. They're great characters. Both of them are truly, phenomenally amazing great characters. Both of them are probably the best examples of the primary theme of balance in this game. Not because they both need each other, although they do, and not because they both present different extreme examples of each other, because they don't. She is not purely sentimental. We know what purely sentimental is like. Rost is purely sentimental. She thinks. 
She has knowledge. She goes beyond her boundaries, literally and met metaphorically. He is not purely a cold fish. He comes across as one many times, of course, and he certainly has more interest in knowledge and understanding than he does in people, but he still cares. He does still have some sentimental sides to him. And these show up in little tidbits throughout the course of the game. And as she earns his respect, and he earns her loyalty, the two of them end up making a fairly good team and accomplishing many great things, just like Pharaoh and Elizabeth did. The parallels between these, these four characters are so obvious, I feel stupid for even bringing it up. But they need to be mentioned because it's one of the most powerful dynamics, because Pharaoh was an extreme, and Elizabeth was an extreme. But Silence and Aloy are not. They are leaning in a direction, but not all the way. And they are leaning in opposite directions, but not all the way. And I like that. I like the way they present that. I like the way they do that. I love the voice acting. I love the way that they interact with each other. I love the way that he is willing to lay it out all for her. I love the way that she slowly grows to tolerate him and respect him throughout the course of the game. Great, great, great character dynamic and great chemistry and some fantastic work between the two of them. I wish I could talk more about it. But what I want to share, and this is something very interesting to me, uh, obviously this is kind of in my mind because it's a game I'm going to be covering pretty much immediately after tomorrow, actually, is Shadow of uh, War is coming out tomorrow, and I'm going to be covering it and doing a premiere run of it. And uh, I, I'm talking about this because Silence is the difference between Celebrimbor and Sauron. Now, I know not a lot of you are going to really get that, so let me try and explain what I mean by that. There's a difference between I care about knowledge and technology and, and information and power and all I care about is knowledge and technology and information and power. And there's just this undercurrent to silence of the person who is very, very pragmatic and very, very cynical. But he hasn't actually become corrupted by it. He hasn't actually become you know, descended to it. He hasn't gone to an extreme, just like she hasn't. And the way he is presented throughout the course of the game, it leads one to think that for all of his obsession, he has grown in wisdom, not merely knowledge, throughout the course of the events of the game in particular, but also leading up to that. And I really, really want to know what he's going to do with Hades now that he has them in that little lantern thing. God, I hate, I hate sequel hooks like that. It was funny fact. Uh, now that I'm right at the end, I, I don't have anything else to really talk about. Uh, one of the first things that was revealed to me about this game was the the stinger at the end, you know, the the lantern, and now let's figure it out. And my and I didn't even have that much context for it, but I knew what it was. It was a stinger. It was a sequel hook, and I hate that, especially when it's not really followed through on, or might not be followed through on. I talked about this recently when it comes to Tyranny, a game that I love, that I really want to see more of, that we might not because it just didn't sell that well. God damn it, give me more, you know. Really, really hoping that we learn more about that and figure out where it's going on with that. But I suppose for the moment I will have to leave you with this rumination, which I hope you have enjoyed, and I will be seeing you guys next time.